This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Wayne Chang. And I'm Scott. And Wayne, you're sounding a little bit better than last time, which is <laughs> great. There's progress. So, uh, But I understand that you actually recovered and then got sick again, as did several of us. So, uh, yeah. It's, Sorry yeah, to hear it's, that, man. It's, it's going around. I, I, I have a feeling that there's a there's a plot afoot. Yes. I think uh, I blame House Jurasco. They're up to something. <laughs> they're they're not doing their job. That's for certain. Mm, that's, that's for certain. certain. Yes. So uh, last episode we did the introduction uh, of ourselves as well as the introduction to Ebron as a setting. This episode we're going to discuss the impact of the last war on the world of Ebron. Uh, we're also going to touch, of course, on how GMs can use it in their games how players can use it to shape their characters and uh, I guess any other aspects of it that we think are important to keep in mind when running or playing a, an Ebron campaign. So let's start with sort of the, the, the core of the last war. What is the last war? Um, when we say the last war, what does that mean to, to people who don't know Eberron? What is the last war? Well, Eberron the basic history of the world establishes that there was a kingdom called Galifar that was a united, strong kingdom that lasted for centuries. And the fundamental beginning of the last war is a century before the general time of play, 998 YK, um, the, the five heirs to the throne of Galifar uh, broke with the standard rules of secession and fought uh, over who would rule Galifar. This ended up splitting their principalities uh, into what are now called the Five Nations and started a century of war. Uh, this war came to the it came to an end in uh, basically in nine ninety four. I think was the morning. Um, which was a terrible eldritch disaster that completely destroyed the nation of Siri. And the catch is that no one really knows what that was. No one knows if that was a weapon that someone used, uh, you know, if it was the equivalent of a nuclear attack, uh, if it was the result of people using too much war magic. Uh, if it was something we still don't understand. So essentially, it's like having a terrible nuclear disaster, but no one's taking credit. And that resulted in the Treaty of Thronehold, with everyone basically calling a timeout until they could figure out what was going on. Right. Go ahead, Wayne. One of the things that I just want to, I don't want everybody to realize is this was a civil war. And from anybody sitting here in North America, we, we, we haven't experienced any of those, obviously, but we've seen the effects. We watch TV and we see the effects of brother fighting brother, sister fighting sister, people killing each other, your own people. And think of the effect that has after a hundred years, people have been doing this. The people who originally started this war are dead. They're, they're no longer alive, but the war is still being fought. And while now... You don't consider, you know, someone from Berlin doesn't consider someone from Carnath their brother. But at one time, that was your family. That was one nation that is trying to kill each other. I think that's a really big thing when you talk about the last war. It's, it is a civil war um, that broke apart the continent. Absolutely. Right. 
Um, yeah, I, and uh, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead, Keith. Uh, I was just going to say, and this is one of the things that I think we called out more strongly in the fourth edition campaign guide is that to a certain degree, I feel that was a point that didn't necessarily come across uh, as strongly as it should have in the original campaign guide. And people at a certain level of, oh, it's over. You know, the war's over. It's fine. And the point is, just as you were saying, what's well, not? You know, that was a 100 years of this bitter struggle that has completely changed the shape of the continent. And that, yeah, that's not just something that everyone has forgotten about and that all the nations live in harmony now. Right. And if you consider the fact that there are races that, you know, they, we, I mentioned the last episode about elves where they come into an adulthood at a hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people who still actually remember some of that, you know, some of those things. Absolutely. Um, I think what's also interesting too, is that you mentioned the day of mourning being the end of the war, but it wasn't until the treaty of Thronehold two years later Correct. that the war actually ended. So there was still conflict for those two years with all of that, um, uncertainty and doubt and fear going on. Yeah. And that's definitely the point is that the war has, when you use the default, uh, campaign setting, the war has only actually been over for two years. Right. And it is, uh, you know, and there's important points we'll get to, uh, about that. Well, you know, might as well touch on it now. You know, the fact that, it didn't end because people's problems were solved. There's no winner. You know, there is no restored Galifar, which is what some of the people at least were fighting for. Instead, they basically just said, I guess we're going to stop because we're too scared to continue. And so some people, certainly there were factions who wanted peace, who felt that we don't need a restored Galifar. Let's just exist as the five nations and, you know, are happy with the situation. But there's a lot of people who still feel, well, you know, Breland was in the right. They were going to win. Uh, and, you know, or that Karnath would have crushed everybody. And, you know, there's still a lot of, uh, of tension there. And, uh, sorry about that. Um, and there is, um, the greater point that we sometimes compare this to World War One, where basically right. is the end of a huge war that really changed, so to speak, the psychological outlook of, uh, a nation, but it's also a little bit like we're right on the edge of World War II, you know, looking to Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, where you say a lot of the nations are still basically preparing for the war to start up again. They're basically saying this, this isn't over. We've just paused. And essentially, if any of us could understand the morning, either harness it for ourselves or just confirm that it's not happening again, uh, that we'd be in a position to to start the war up again. So, you know, we always want that tension. Scott, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. And that's the, I think um, the biggest thing to take away from Eberron is when you're looking at it is to remember that in general, dwarves aren't loyal to dwarves. Gnomes aren't loyal to gnomes. Mm-hmm. A gnome born in Brayland is loyal to Brayland. And there's a level of nationalism that Europeans get more than Americans do, just in general, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's 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 in line with their history. We have a lot of nationalism in America, but not we've never faced something like that on that scale, um, where you have these uh, 
nations running around, this nation building to a level of World War One, and this nationalism and blending into fascism, and that you see that in Eberron as well. There's a degree of fascism in some of the nations. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and uh, you know, obviously, we come back to civil wars and noting, well, of course, in North America, we have seen a civil war, just not in our lifetimes, right? Um, but certainly. One of the things traveling around Europe that I've sort of certainly seen is the impact of history and the fact that so many nations uh, have invaded, conquered, or you know fought one another, uh, going far back into the past, and that you have this sort of lingering resentments and historical issues uh, that you know I've I've sort of said if you dropped a map of of Europe over the U.S., you know, here in uh, Oregon, well, you know, we'd have invaded Washington State a couple of times and we'd hate those people. (laughs) Uh, And of course, they'd speak a different language and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, But it is exactly that of considering the impact of history and the fact that your family, you know, if you're human, it's not just your lifetime, it's your parents' lifetime. Uh, They have been at war with these other nations off and on. So one of the odd benefits of the mm-hmm. war, not really odd, it's, this, is, this is any war, right? Where we have, we'll see, we see innovations that come out of war mm-hmm. because of necessity or because of, um, you know, trying to find that, that edge. Um, and of course there's a number of those that came out in the last war for Eberron for, for mm-hmm. the five nations in particular. Um, one of the big ones is obviously Warforged, starting with Warforged Titans, and then, of course, um, evolving to toward the sentient Warforged. Um, Karnath, with its use of undead as a military force, I oh. thought was really interesting. Um, airships, I think, were were those created before the last war? or during? No, the airships were created that? during the last war. They weren't specifically created for military use. But just in terms of transportation, you know, Mm. the point is, again, airships, when we look at them, are not highly militarized things. Nonetheless, they are floating platforms. Uh, So certainly in one of my novels, it starts off with the idea of an airship uh, that is flying over a battlefield and archers raining down fire and, you know, and bombs. Um, And so... Airships, the point is to say they weren't an integral, they weren't as involved in uh, the war as, let's say, uh, fighter jets are in, or bombers are in our military today, but they were still something developed during it that would have had an impact upon it. Right, right, right. Um, But that comes back to the fact that they were, of course, developed by Helts and Lirindar. And so this comes back to the point that a lot of the houses, one of the biggest impacts of the last war was a shift in the balance of power between the nations and the dragon-marked houses, the families that have are the sort of foundation of magical industry in uh, Corvair. And essentially, prior to the war, Galifar, the united uh, human nation, had essentially dictated terms to the houses. And since they were the only market, that's Mm -hmm. easily done. Uh, With the war, suddenly when they split into five, you both have, you know, basically every nation needs the services the houses can provide along with 
the houses themselves coming up with innovations, such as the Warforged being from House Kenneth, uh, you know, everyone needing healers. Um, I mean, go into that more if we feel like it, but the basic point is suddenly, you know, Braylon can't afford to just say, oh, no, we want nothing to do with you, House Kenneth, because, well, their neighbors aren't going to uh, cut them off. And so, therefore, suddenly it puts the houses on a much stronger position uh, to, you know, decide their fate, as it were. Right. And those services are going to be in demand uh, by all the nations. Exactly. Um, I, I don't know that's that, what I'm saying. Yeah it, would, it, it, yeah, it wouldn't make sense, obviously. Like you said, it wouldn't make sense for them to be like, no, we don't want to deal with the Dragonmark houses anymore. Well, it's like, well, now you've and, just given every other nation a competitive edge. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and someone um, someone asked today uh, in my at my website, asked, well, how do you pit first-level warriors against a Warforged Titan? Uh, and the answer is you don't, obviously. If, you know, a Warforged Titan shows up, those first-level warriors better get out of its way. Exactly. Uh, you engage it with something, you know, any more than you'd have people running up and attacking a tank with, you know, uh, with machetes. And so the answer is you need something to engage it, uh, whether it's another Warforged Titan, whether it's, uh, you know, magical attacks, whether it's something else. And so the point is Kenneth not only makes the Warforged Titan – they then start work on the thing that you need to take down the Warforged Titan, and they'll sell that to you right. for, you know, if the price is right. Right. So that really that really put um, both the fragmentation of, of the Kingdom of Galifar into five separate nations, plus this demand for the industry that the Dragonmark houses provided really put um, – it really bolstered the Dragonmark houses in terms of their standing – um, not quite as nations, obviously, because they, they, they technically can't own land. There are certain um, uh, things, I think, still well, even in the Treaty of Thronehold, too, so, that prevent – Yeah. So the issue about that is the Dragonmark houses are held in check by something called the Korth Edicts, which were established right. by Galifar and state Dragonmark houses can't hold land. Dragonmarked heirs can't hold uh, noble rank. They can't maintain military forces except for House Deneath. You know, there's all these sort of things intended to keep – the houses from having power and the point where we're at now is can they who, who would enforce those and so right. the dragon marked houses are by and large still holding to those but you could say house Lirandar essentially is running valinar uh you know and you sort of have things like that where what you're seeing is the houses starting to push beyond those limits and see what happens. Now, the Treaty of Thronehold, uh, people can point to and say, but the Treaty of Thronehold uh, included provisions that prevented House Caneth from uh, basically shut down the creation forges, which were what they right, used to Right, I was going to mention forged. that. Exactly. And one thing could be saying, well, how's that fit with all, uh, all the stuff that I've just been saying? Part of it is that House Caneth itself was definitely a hard hit by the morning. House Haneth, Kenneth was based in, the house leadership was in Siri. And so the house itself was suddenly at that time split into three factions. Mm -hmm. So they themselves were not in the strongest position uh, to sort of basically negotiate. Uh, and on top of that, frankly, the other houses didn't mind seeing them sort of taken down a peg. So my argument is that where the 12 might stand up for other things, to a certain degree, they were like, yeah, we don't mind, you know, sort of uh, 
putting some limits on you. Um, so there's a bunch of sort of secondary factors there, but that still doesn't speak to the idea that they could completely enforce something a house was prepared to fight about. Right. And the other thing that happened, um, we also saw that Warforged, having been created by, by House Kenneth, were uh, previously, re previously regarded as property, mm -hmm. um, whereas with the Treaty of Thronehold, then they were freed. Um, although there's still some places that, you know, whether it's through indentured servitude or still slavery, um, that the Warforged are still uh, servants, so to speak. Absolutely. So. I mean, if you think about that for a sec, you know, House Kenneth took a huge hit. I mean, they profited the most during the war. They, they made Indeed. the most weapons. They made the Warforged. I mean, there's no nation that didn't get Warforged except maybe Karnath. Um, yeah. And even then, I'm sure they had it. Oh, they, like, they did. This, just less, obviously, yeah. Yeah. But now you have basically taken away. And if you're a smart company, and we got to think of these people as corporations, you didn't just say, hey, I'm selling these to you. Maybe I leased them to you. Maybe I rented them to you. But all of a sudden, my rental property, my inventory, my stock is gone. Right. Is poof out in the world. And not just that, I can't make any more. I, mm -hmm. I, you've told me I can't use my creation forges. I can't make any more of these things. I, I can't make any more Warforged. When, you know, you know, House Canada's got to be like, I hate this. I did the most war profiteering. I got the most money. And all of a sudden, you blow up, you blow up Seer, and mm -hmm. I lose my major production, you know, house uh, leadership. I am fractured across three barons. Um, mm -hmm. And now I have to deal with everybody else on my back because now, like, you know, war is bad and, and whatnot. And everybody looks at my house and says, you're the face of the war. Mm -hmm. Your Warforged, your weapons are the face of the war. Your Kenneth mark on my sword is the face of the war. That mm -hmm. even though people may, you know, maybe some people want the war to start, but the majority of people are like, well, it's over and done. Why do I still have this reminder? Yeah, they're Absolutely. fatigued. Yeah, and that's, that's, again, definitely part of the whole point of the Warforged, uh, of all the races, Warforged are the one where it is most obvious and logical that they would face a lot of prejudice. Because first off, as you said, they are enormously reminders of the war. They are weapons created to fight in this war. Uh, on top of that, they're incredibly dangerous. Uh, if you take under 3.5 rules, an adamantine warforged uh, has a base AC of 18, damage reduction of 2, if I recall correctly. Uh, they're immune to non-lethal damage. Uh, and they have a lethal unarmed strike. Uh, and, you know, which is essentially if they punch you, it's basically like they're hitting you with a mace. And so it's not simply that they were built for war. Uh, if you take one of those, even if he's not carrying a weapon, even if he's just trying to, you know, sort of be a construction worker, he is a weapon. And, you know, again, a lot of people would naturally not want that thing around. You know, how do I trust that around my children? Um, and so it's easy to see, again, the sort of 
uh, fear and doubt that's going to come up around that. And for the Warforged themselves, it comes back to the, they were literally created for this war. It is the only purpose they have known. They're now told, oh, you're free. You're citizens of the world. But what does that even mean? You know, so for a lot of Warforged, one of the reasons that the indentured servitude path, you know, works very well is that there's a certain number of Warforged who basically would just like to be told what to do. And they don't really understand, uh, you know, their, the alternatives. Yeah, no, indeed. They're, they're, they're looking for that, that place to fit into where they can just continue being the servant that they were. Or again, it's it's that, you know, to me, that's what makes a Warforged character, a player character so interesting is it's what mm-hmm. is your purpose? What are you, right. you know, what drives you? Why are you doing whatever you're doing? Because again, it's very easy for them to just say, just give me a job, you know? And so what is it that makes your Warforged strike out on their own? What are they looking for? Right. It's not like they were, they grew up, you know, trying to figure out what they wanted to be. They were born knowing what they were to be. Yeah, and uh, so I use that uh, during the game setting too because invariably someone wants to play a Warforged and mm-hmm. I will usually hit them with the uh, like an ecumenical dialogue from the priests of mm-hmm. like, you don't have a soul, you're not, you're not a person, right? You're, you're just not. You were mm-hmm. created. You're magic. You're not a living thing. And so we can get into these dialogues and like, okay, can you convince religious zealots who believe in the concept of souls and whatnot uh, and they're not all zealots, but there's there's an interesting dialogue to be had with a Warforged player to right. explore those those inner workings. Well, it's exactly that question of, uh, and I don't want to delve too deeply into Warforged because we could spend an hour on that if we're not careful. Uh, but you know, it does come back to that: what is it that matters to you? You know, unlike any human character, you never had goals in life. You know, your job was just to fight for your nation. What is it that drives you now? Is it friendship? You know, is it that there's another uh, player in the group who you worked with and, you know, you're just basically uh, you're Zoe to, to Mal and Firefly. You know, I'm, I'm following the captain around. Uh, or is it you have a sense of purpose? You want to prove you have a soul. You want to discover the meaning of life. You know, I mean, again, there's so many different possibilities uh, to go with because you're in a moment of essentially choosing what you believe your destiny is. Right. So, so we don't spend a whole hour just talking about Warforged. (laughs) Um, Quick, real quickly, let's, let's also talk about another outcome of the last war Mm -hmm. with uh, these new nations that were born, or at least recognized. (laughs) Right. So previously it really was just the five nations, but now we have the Eldine reaches. We have Kabara, we have Zalargo, we have the Moraholds. And, and so on. Well, uh, and, yeah. and part of the point I'd say there is essentially before the last war, what you really had is a map that Galifar just sort of wrote Galifar on the map and right. split it up into things. And to a large degree, you know, when you take Syria in particular, uh, which encompassed what is now Dargoon and Valinar, mm-hmm. you know, Valinar always was culturally distinctive. It's simply that they were under sort of Syrian rule and called Syria on the map. Right. Uh, and so what you've seen now is, again, with that break in power, both in many cases, uh, you know, sort of military 
you know, on the one hand, you have the Moorholds basically just saying, yeah, you know, Moorholds and Zilargo are essentially them both saying, you know, you never really ruled us and we're just standing alone now. Uh, and on the other hand, you have places like Valinor and Dargoon that actually had, uh, in one form or another, military uprisings that separated them. Right. Um, so the, the distinction being that the Treaty of Thronehold officially recognizes them as nations. Yes. But there's one exception. Mm-hmm. And I'd li- I, I, want, I want your take on that, Keith, as far as um, when specifically we're talking about Droam. Mm-hmm. Where they see themselves as a nation, they're a nation of monsters. But for some reason, the Treaty of Thronehold... Uh, chose they they chose to not recognize it officially. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few things there. Uh, part of it is the idea that there is just inherent prejudice against what are considered monsters by most of the things. That essentially the nations say you've got three hags who have thrown together this alliance of trolls and ogres and goblins, and first of all. They just don't believe it's going to last. They're just sort of like, don't be ridiculous. That'll be gone in two years. You know, they're going to turn on each other. They'll kill each other. This isn't a real nation. Um, And second, you know, because again, until just recently, that was on the map. That was Brayland. And Brayland also not being willing to say, essentially, you know, it's it's a tribal chieftain suddenly rising up and, and claiming they're a sovereign nation. We're saying we just don't take you seriously. Um, and I think it is both a combination of the idea that these creatures are seen as savages, as monsters, as things like that. Um, so to a certain degree, you can almost look at terrorists in our world suddenly declaring a nation. And people saying, you know, we're not accepting that. Um, and on the other hand, you can also say it's because they don't want them to last. You know, they don't like the idea of this nation that is, again, the difference between something like Zubargo, which we've actually had diplomatic relations. You know, it's essentially been its own nation. It just hasn't been officially recognized. Uh, to, on the other hand, uh, Droam, which is both recent and something we don't really, we don't, we're not comfortable with it, and we don't really believe in it. So, just to play devil's advocate, mm-hmm. why was it acceptable for Dargoon to become a recognized nation, but not Droam? Dargoon played a much bigger role in the last war. So, Dargoon, uh, the, it started in the first place because there was heavy use of goblin mercenaries. And uh, eventually the goblin mercenaries said, well, wait a second, you don't actually have the power. You know, we have more power in this region than you do, so we're just going to take it. And so there you had two different factors. Uh, You first had the factor that, again, they were more involved in the war itself directly, which means that there were diplomatic negotiations they'd had by the end of the war allies. Uh, You know, Brayland essentially saw them as, and they'd been around for a while. Uh, And, you know, Brayland essentially saw them as this is a force we need to essentially make peace with. Okay. Um, So we're thinking like there's there's a historical culture, there's a force, um, there's the – just the the force in numbers and the force in organization. Whereas if I remember correctly, has only been around for a decade. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not as organized. You know, the goblins, again, were fielding armies. 
Uh, Droam, the idea is, well, they're getting to where they could do that, but their involvement in the last war was largely mercenaries brokered through House Tharashk. Right. So you didn't actually have, like, a Droam army uh, in the field, which, again, comes back to their scene sort of almost more like we'd see terrorists than as, uh, you know, as something like Dargoon, where it is actually a military power. Fair enough. But it's a good cool. question. And, and again, like I said, to me, part of the idea is people are amazed it's still around. You right. know, that, that no one expected the daughters to really have the ability to hold this whole crazy thing together. Right. Um, but anyhow, but as, as you were saying, I mean, this does come back to other nations, Kabara, the Eldine Reaches, and... It is also definitely a point of a lot of the business with the Treaty of Thronehold was people just trying to bring a stop to the conflict. And again, mm-hmm. Dargoon has an army. We want them to not fight with it. Whereas <laughs> Droham, we're like, you're a bunch of crazy bandits, essentially. We don't really need to make a deal with you. Um, but it right. does come back to the treaty was signed two years ago, and now we're at a point where there are certainly people who are undoubtedly saying, why we make a deal with Dargoon? You know, and questions like that. You know, people are not necessarily happy uh, in all the nations with all the arrangements that were made. And certainly House Kenneth isn't happy uh, with, you know, the restrictions on the creation forges. Right. And, and with Targoon, like, there's actual obvious hints of, uh, you know, of um, sort of decentralization a little bit within that nation. You know, and further, yeah, I mean, and, and that's a thing we have in many of the nations, you know, the idea that uh, King Caius of Carnath has been a strong proponent of peace, but that many of his own warlords are essentially saying, we could have won, why are we being, why aren't we pushing, right. you know, right. uh, more strongly? Um, and certainly then you get to Valinar. Where the argument, you know, it's it's questionable whether uh, the Terranidal even really care about having a nation, uh, or if they have another agenda at work right. there. Right. So to sort of wrap up this this section of it, um, what what we're looking at here is we know that the status quo has been shattered. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a United Kingdom is no longer. It's, uh, it's fragmented into five. Actually more than five nations now because we have all these right. new nations that we just talked about. Dozen nations. Um, yeah, a dozen, right. Uh, there's no single nation uh, like Galifar had uh, t- that uh, that has the power to keep the Dragonmark houses in check. Um, so there's some you know, power struggles, not struggles. Um, it's just a change in the whole balance. The point was yes. that Galifar, Dragonmark houses aside, it had the power to enforce a single rule across the continent. And now nobody has that power. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, we also know that the, the morning has caused people to sort of question their phase. They're, they're, they have a fear that their nation could be next. Um, some people in, in some messed up people might even think that, well, maybe Seer deserved it. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, that's another quick point while we're talking about faith is first off exactly that, that for a lot of people it's it's question faith, but also it's worth noting again when we are talking about new nations arriving and such, on the other hand you also have Thrain, which it is in the course of the war that Thrain became a theocracy. 
And so that was a big change there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so you've got the sort of examples of people questioning faith. And on the other hand, you have uh, examples of people basically turning to faith. And, right. and, uh, and realistically, I mean, Thrain would have been her, what happened to Thrain is essentially heretical to, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the standard faith of Galifar. Certainly. Now, of course, they had going in their on their behalf that it was the king of Thrain who made the decision to turn power sure. over to the church. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, again, something that the other nations obviously would uh, find appalling and threatening. Right. So lastly, what we have is now we have also the Mornland, which is what Syria used to be. And it's this you know, mysterious threat. Um, it's ever present. You can't ignore it. Um, one of the things that I find really intriguing about it is uh, a lot of fantasy settings have a, uh, they have some sort of great you know, cataclysm that occurred long ago. Um, what's interesting about Eberron is that you have one that just happened four years ago. And the, from a design standpoint, that was definitely intentional of basically Galifar is not a very interesting place to be an adventurer in. You know, it's united. It's uh, solid. Uh, basically, with the Mornland, what we've done is not only completely shaken up you know, sort of strong order, but we've just dropped the biggest dungeon in the world right in the middle of the continent. Right. And so, you know, as you said, a lot of settings have something terrible that happened long ago, or they have the bad land. You know, you have Mordor, you have whatever, but it's often off in a corner. And we're saying, oh, yeah. no, the bad land is bam, right in the middle of everything. Literally, right. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely sort of part of its purpose is to well, yeah. make this a time when uh, there's a lot for adventurers to do. Well, the other thing that's interesting is typically you have like the good guys versus the bad guys, right? The good nation versus the bad nation, mm -hmm. the monster nation. In this case, we have humanoid nations mm -hmm. that are at conflict with each other, even post-war conflict. Uh, so that makes it that that further enhances that sort of gray area aspect of Abron as well. Like not not things things are not necessarily inherently good or evil. But that's what that's genius about Eberron, right? Is because mm -hmm. if I'm a paladin of Thrain, I'm a paladin of Thrain, mm -hmm. and the rest right. of you are not paladins of my nation nor my god. You know, and it, it allows me to play a paladin. You know, I've always had the argument it was like, so as an Aztec paladin, good. Well, for his nation and his people, of course he is. A Carnathy paladin who fights alongside the undead is just as good internally as anyone else. Mm -hmm. No, and and uh, I think I remember I mentioned last time, you know, one of my favorite games I ran actually was a campaign in which we had as three of the players, a, a paladin of the Blood of All, a priest of the Silver Flame, and a warlock uh, essentially dedicated to one of the Lords of Dust. Uh, basically on the theory of if my guy rises, he at least will enslave us all instead of destroying us all. Uh, and that's better, you know. Um, and just started off with essentially an hour of them literally discussing religion and character. And it was great wow. because they just were totally able to just say, you know, again, you're Emerald Claw, I'm, you're not Emerald Claw, Blood of All, uh, I'm Silver Flame. And I'm prepared to debate that with you. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Civilly at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it comes so, back uh, to, I think the point is, but it's not good or evil. 
It's people right. who believe different things, but they're still people. Right, right. All right, so I think we've given a pretty good understanding of what the last war was, uh, what it was about, what happened, what came out of it. I would like so to speak talk, to, to yeah. one more thing on it that, that did come up. Someone was asking, you know, is it more like World War One? Is it more like Napoleonic War? And one of the points I would say is it was 100 years long. And that was not 100 years of constant nonstop war. When you think of how long that period of time is, what you're talking about is starts and stops. You know, periods of relative peace where we're just staring at each other across the front lines, World War, you know, one style trench combat and periods of intense conflict where borders are changing, where, you know, a new weapon, you know, the Warforged Titan is introduced. And oh, my goodness, you know, Siri has this unstoppable Warforged Titan brigade. Uh, and so that's just the point of there would have been different uh, sort of levels of tension and, you know, as new developments uh, arose. And that's also, of course, where we sort of get now some people saying, you know, I'll believe it when we don't have war in five years. You know, right. Anyhow. Oh, that's an interesting point. I never thought of that. I never thought of that before. Because basically you couldn't sustain a level of absolute intense war for a century. You know, the landscape would be completely devastated. And so that's my point of saying, oh, we had that. And we, you know, we had it recently. Uh, certainly we were in one of those stages of intense conflict leading up to the morning. But I don't feel that it was that for a hundred straight years. That makes sense. Yeah. Anyhow. So uh, with all of that in mind, let's get into Excuse me. Let's get into the impact that the last war has on player characters. So, for example, you know, I'm creating my character, or we're creating a party of characters, and we want to, we want to, we want to ensure that we incorporate this feeling of this war having just ended two years prior to the start of the campaign. Um, what are some ways that we can consider that? How do we consider that in our character creation process? I think one of the things that everybody has to remember is nobody was unaffected. Mm -hmm. This was two years ago. Your character is not a year old. Um, mm -hmm. even, even a war forge. This war was all encompassing. Like Keith mentioned, yes, it wasn't, it wasn't a hundred years of battles. It was intense fighting, lulls, a pause, shifting alliances, but everybody had had somebody affected by it. Someone was killed. Someone in the family was killed. Somebody went off the war, never came back. There's no character story that's without it. If you start a Eberron campaign and you don't talk about, or you don't, you don't reference the last war in a character, in a party, um, in the narrative, this, you, you miss out on part of, of Eberron. And it's a, a very, very important part, obviously. So, even you've got to come from that mindset now. I, I've never been to war. I, I'm I'm not a soldier, so I I can't personally say. But you've got to think if you were affected somehow. If your character was, let's say your character was a scribe, maybe you worked and did something for the war, or maybe you're the one that had to write the "I'm sorry, your son or your daughter was killed in the war." Yeah. Everybody, everybody, every every character was affected um and that makes a huge impact on starting a campaign 
And and that's definitely a, a point to me is for me, it just gives players oftentimes if players are just starting, I want to play a dwarf fighter. I may not even have more of an idea than that. And the point to me is Eberron gives the war gives a great starting point to help players think about their characters as more than numbers. If I say, well, you were if you know, you're a fighter. You've developed these skills over the course of presumably the last decade. What did you do with them? Did you fight? Were you a soldier? If so, who did you fight for? If not, why didn't you fight? What were you doing instead? You know, were you a mercenary? Were you a bodyguard? Uh, but you know, it immediately but gets into. Did you work into, for one of the Dragon Mark houses, for example? You worked for the Dragon Mark house. But basically, that point of saying you had the skills to fight. So did you? And if so, for who and why? Right. Um, I certainly think going back to the idea of the scribe, you know, a thing I have done a lot of times is to actually use the war as the basis for an entire party of players. So actually a very simple way, if, you're, if your players don't have strong stories of their own in mind, I want to play a rogue, you know, prince of the Lazar principalities. You know, if they're just like, oh, we just want to play something. Uh, starting them off as a group of people who fought together during the war, as people who were part of a military unit. I'd like to call this the Firefly option, even though in Firefly only two of the characters fought together during the war. But the point is, it's a very easy way to say, why are we friends? Why do we know each other? Why are we a small group of pretty remarkably talented people? And I like to use Siri because Siri doesn't exist anymore. And so it's a perfect way to say we were skilled soldiers fighting for a nation. We believed in our cause and it's gone. And so essentially we have nothing better to do now than to be adventurers. You know, it's back to the brown coats in, in Firefly. And when I do a session like that, what I will often do is actually do the first or second, you know, first couple of scenarios actually during the war. And let's just say, okay, you're on a raid, you're holding an area against the undead. And that's a great way for people to see, oh, we're fighting Carnathi undead. That creates a picture in our mind of what this world is like and that there are these people up north who are using undead armies. And it gives us a chance to be in mortal danger together and sort of form that attachment. And then after that, we're gonna say, okay, the morning happened, it's two years later, What's gone on in between then? How have you gone from that to becoming adventurers and what do you care about? So I think those these ideas work really well for the majority of the races. There's one race in particular though that I find a little bit challenging mm-hmm. to incorporate into the last war and that's the Kalistar. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have my own ideas on, on how that might be um, accounted for, but I'm curious how some of you have handled that. I've been blabbering a lot. Does someone else want to jump in first? I mean, I could I could share what ideas I have, and then if anybody else wants to chime in, that's fine. Um, but essentially, the way I've always thought of it is that the, the you have this the dreaming dark, right, mm-hmm. which is this manipulative force, and they're trying to do, they have this long game that they're playing, and uh, I like to think, and, and I think there's even something some content to this in, in some of the books um, that they influenced certain events in the last war. Influenced the way people thought and approached things, and and so on. 
Well, we're just jumping on that for just a moment, if I can, because yeah. Dreaming Dark. Uh, you know, the point of Eberron, again, is that we have all these major evil forces. And it's sort of up to you as Game Master to decide which do I want to use. But it is very logical. Uh, the Dreaming Dark, how they came to power in Sarlona was by manipulating the current nations into terrible war and right. then setting themselves up sort of as the saviors who brought an end to that war. And so this is what I always tell people is if they want to take over Corvair, they wouldn't do it by bringing an army in uh, from Sarlona because then it's an army of occupation. Everyone resists it. They would trick you into, you know, they pick some kind of puppet and trick you into basically being ruled by them. Right, they and do so it through the, disruption. Right. right, so the idea yeah. of them creating the last war, started by various people's pride and arrogance and such, is incredibly logical. Uh, the most likely scenario is it ended before they expected it to. Right. That they had a plan that didn't account for the morning, and well, they don't have their savior in place, or things right. like that. Right, and I could even see it, maybe not necessarily to take take over Corvair, although that, I think that's that's a really good. Um, that's a highly likely reason, but also maybe just to disrupt things enough so that they can still attack Kalistar who are in Corvair mm -hmm. without, um, without it being obvious. Mm -hmm. And so, so I can imagine a Kalistar character, for example, fighting that shadow war mm -hmm. during the last war, either on the front lines or, you know, through, uh, you know, in the shadows essentially. Right. And I think that, uh, that is a perfectly logical and, you know, again, getting into a sort of shadow war going on is a great story that you could explore to the Kalistar sort of having this whole uh, sort of secondary thing. And, hey, that's the kind of thing you'd want some powerful friends to help you uh, deal with. Right. Uh, I think to me that ties to the fact that a lot of the Kalistar, you know, this is, of course, the, the point of Adar, don't believe in active conflict. Uh, with the Dreaming Dark, that they're like, we can win this war essentially just through devotion. And right. that, that means, the reason that that's important is that means, well, if your Kalistar is engaged in this shadow war, why isn't he sort of part of a huge unit or army of Kalistar? And part of the point is saying, well, other people don't take it as seriously or believe in more passive resistance. Uh, and, you know, you're one of these people's like, no, we've got to fight back. We've got to take this, take action. Uh, you know, and and that's a great uh, basis for a player character. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, to completely flip the story around, uh, you can also have a Kalistar who either uh, was raised not among their own kind and don't even know about uh, the conflict, uh, which I've done before, or someone who basically has said, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm Thrain first and foremost. And right. I believe in this nation. And then to me, that's a plot hook that you can explore. Of right. Are you really turning your back on your people? Do you really not care about, you know, I could be saying that shadow war, that's just something the elders are saying. You know, they're just using that to try and keep us all afraid. And well, then in the course of the adventure, probably some dreaming dark is going to show up and I'm going to discover that there really is a shadow war. But I'm saying I could certainly start as the guy who doesn't take that stuff seriously and just wants mm. to go off and join the rebellion and, you know, uh, if you will. Uh, or, or even somebody who's, who does recognize both and says, I am a part of this world, 
and this, you know, I can influence this world and I can contribute to it. And these are my people. This, you know, this nation is my community, you know, just as much as the Kalistar are my community. Yeah. I've, right. And so and they're invested, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I was going to say, I've used uh, the last Kalistar I had, I used the um, unique snowflake push for him being a Kalistar. And I, he was during the war, he was essentially being forcibly used as a sort of an MK Ultra. Right, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and see, that's exactly the point to me of when you start with the premise of if you just start with your, your group of players and say you're all part of a unit of soldiers, uh, how does your concept fit into this? Then the guy who's saying, well, I'm the Kalistar Scion, oh, yeah, you know, I am like a part of a mysterious psyops program that they're trying to figure out how to to weaponize this new thing. You know, I mean, basically, uh, it gives a sort of foundation to figure out how would this character fit into this scenario. And I think the MK Ultra is a, a great example of, you know, and that's very much uh, in the history of things where we talk about the origins of House Tarkanon, uh, the aberrant dragon-marked house. And the whole premise is that started with essentially a wetwork operation of, um, I think it was Brayland on its own, basically saying we want to uh, to weaponize aberrant dragon marks. We want to create a unit of aberrant dragon marked operatives, mm-hmm. um, and that not working out so well. <laughs> so I think one of the cool things that you can do also, as far as tying in the Lost War to a player character is um a lot of game systems and and some some versions of dnd dnd version 3.5 for example had flaws via unearthed arcana fifth edition wayna and, and i'll let you talk about this as well they, they have flaws as well savage worlds has hindrances fate has aspects but these are mechanical means through which you can tie in um the effects the actual either physical or psychological effects of this war on a player character um now, now, Scott, I'd, I'd like you being somebody who serves in the military, mm-hmm. I'd like to get a sense from you what your take on that is as far as how a player can really sort of hook onto that to define their character. Um, yeah, it's I th- for, for if you've never been in combat, right? If you've never been shot at or blown up at um, or even just deploy, even if you're, you, you've been a fobbit in Afghanistan or Iraq or any of the other battlefields, uh, it, it is a difficult concept for civilians to kind of understand our culture and what we go through. And um, But if you know military people, talk to them, right? Um, watch some of the war movies. Uh, and not like World War II, but you could watch like uh, Full Metal Jacket, right? For instance, to see some of those flaws uh, and that twisting of a psyche, even – from like the middle of the film on, you know, in military, we have a very black, dark sense of humor. It's just what we do. We have it because our lives are on the line and we just, we just don't care. Right. And you can twist those. And then you start looking at the different aspects of what, what war really can do to you. And you, you look at like a, if you're in an explosion, which can happen in Eberron, you've got TBI, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know brain injuries. Right. Um, How's that going to affect you? What physical abilities does that provide for your character? Um, what psychological scarring does that do when you know that you've had to, you know, pull half of your buddy out of a burning wreckage and the other half is still in the wreckage burning on fire? 
um, you know, and or you're you're the medic and you have your people that you're the only person capable of caring and treating for wounded in a triage situation under fire and there are grown men screaming for their mothers because they're on their last breath or they're in such intense physical pain, what does that do to you as you know, that combat cleric, for instance, who you can't always provide, you can't always do, how does that change your character? And those are the, those are the ways that I would, if you really want to play up this, uh, the, the, the trauma of, of combat, is that's how I would look at it. I wouldn't go for, you know, har har, I've got a peg leg, I lost an arm. You know, those are, those are physical uh, disabilities that can be overcome, right? Especially in a, you know, a magical land where they, prosthetics wouldn't be a problem. Um, but if you really want to dig deep into the uh, the actual trauma and the emotional scarring that goes on into a human being over war, uh, there there are ways to go about it that will respect what has happened and respect war and, and provide. You know, you might have a dark time at the table, but your role playing and the conversations that you can bring about can be very helpful and very enlightening. And I think to me that's a big part of what you're looking to get out of the experience. Because I know a lot of players, when I present these sort of concepts, essentially sort of say, why would I want something to be wrong with my character? Why do I want to essentially injure myself? And to me, the point is because what we're actually making is a story and perfect characters are not interesting. Uh, That... Imagine how whatever scene you're dealing with is playing out in, uh, you know, if you were reading it in a book, if you were watching it in a movie and having a character struggle with trauma, you know, overcome, uh, fears or experiences is much more interesting than just, I got a magic sword and I'm going to run around and hit things. (laughs) Um, certainly for me, that's why I'm saying when I do the, the scenario where I'm going to have everybody have served together, I start them off with at least one adventure, if not two, uh, in the war, just so we can actually again say, what were some of the things that happened? You know, again, that idea that if we were on the Carnathy front, what does that mean? What sort of things did we see? And, uh, you know, the idea of just, again, literally fighting armies of undead. You know, they come in the night. They can see perfectly. Uh, they're dead. You know, what is that? Uh, you know, how does that really feel? And, right. uh, again, obviously even playing it doesn't mean you experience it, but actually having a scenario where you guys are trying to hold a fort that doesn't have, you know, you don't have enough people, you don't have enough supplies and the skeletons are coming. What is that like? And, you know, it does let you then think more about, wow, my character has been through some stuff. I think one of the questions, actually, I want to turn this a little to Scott, is how would you, and I, I'm, this could be a DM thing as well, how do you get somebody to feel that that fear? Mm-hmm. How do you get someone to feel the despair? How do you get, how do you accurately and faithfully portray that having never been there? Like, I, I've... I've been in a fight. I've never had someone shoot at me. Mm-hmm. How do I go about portraying that kind of experience and having a logical yet also emotional discussion role play experience at the table about that? Like what what is it that someone's got to know about war 
you know, without, I, I don't want to be flippant about it, but without like looking at pictures and, and depressing themselves, <laughs> but also being able to sort of get to that point. Sure. Uh, man, it's interesting. Um, cause you essentially asking me to remove myself from myself. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think you could do it if you understand that warfare in general are moments of punctuated chaos, right? That if you can convey that when you're in this fight, um, that it's not, it, it, when you go into the mechanic side of it, right, is what we're kind of looking at. If you, you're, it's not an arrow is flying at you. You know, you need to convey that there, you know, there's a darkening cloud of arrows coming at your party or at your fellows. You present Sophie's choices, which is may seem like a harsh term, but you, you if you really want to convey the the utter chaos and the the ability to try to keep your head in the game, I would do that. I would I would present the mass chaos of battle, the smells, the gore, the sounds. Right, it's it's a din that can happen. The screams, the cries, the smells of feces, urine littering the battlefield. Uh, it, it's a thing that happens. The blood, um, entrails pouring out of people. Um, and yeah, the Sophie's Choices moments where it's just like, okay, well, what are you going to do? You, you, you're pulling X out of harm's way, this, or are you going to go over here and you know provide covering fire or, or back-to-back fighting cover for your other person? Um, and really talk them up and remind them. There are some game systems I think you can really do this well. You know, Savage Worlds has the Benny system. Um, fate has the aspects which you know it really works really well with um, you know for instance I've seen a grown ass trained man who is very very much more trained to fight than your average combatant and had never been tested and when tested he hunkered down behind the wheel well and engine block of a vehicle and didn't move for a firefight which was unexpected by everybody of course right Um, and so it's just does that help yeah, it does. I mean, it's it's one thing to. I mean, we're not. You may not. We're not necessarily telling a war story right. with Eberron, but it is a the post-war story with Eberron, but without because I can't. I can't go and be like, oh, I can have that shared experience with Scott, the person. Right. But my character could have, my Warforged character could have that shared experience with your character. But without actually understanding that, like, I mean, I think with the systems that we've mentioned, I I think the only system that I know that can actually, has actually created that is, is the, is Dread, right? As an RPG. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's an artificial, but it's, it's so hard to understand that. Um, to know what's going on there, but to be respectful of it too, because you know, not everybody gets through that well. Right. It should have a mark on your character, and it may not be the focus. It, it may not be the the most important thing, but it should have a mark uh, to sort of be like you know, we if we were all in one unit fighting in the last war, what were some of those? hard well, choices that we had to make. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and looking, looking very specifically, uh, I have a uh, one shot that I've run at some of the charity events recently. Uh, and with a one shot, the whole challenge is you need to get people into the characters in the story with very little time. Yeah. And so in that 
story, all the characters are former soldiers who were in a prisoner of war camp. And with each, and specifically a Carnathy prisoner of war camp, where they were performing necromantic experiments on the prisoners. And with that, you mentioned Dread. I use something similar to the Dread system of basically giving everyone a questionnaire. Uh, and the questionnaire includes basically what was the worst thing that was done to you uh, in the camp? Uh, mm-hmm. How did you help with the escape? You know, or something to that effect. Uh, and basically, you did escape, you know, but plan, uh, you know, you did as best as you could, but who did you leave behind? And so the point is, without having a lot of time to talk about things, and in this case, I actually do multiple choice just because they don't know the setting, potentially they don't know things. So I'm going to actually offer you four choices, you know, just looking at one right now, you know, uh, who'd you leave behind? Was it, uh, you know, this is the Warforged, and it's, well, was it another Warforged soldier from your unit, for, you know, made from the same mold as you? Uh, was it, you know, Rascal and Warforged Scout, one of the few ones you met who had a sense of humor? Uh, was it you actually left a chunk of yourself behind? And, you know, your right arm isn't your original right arm. Um, but what I'm saying is, basically, if the player isn't prepared to go that deep, you can still ask them specific questions. You know, what was the thing that went wrong? What was the person you lost? You know, that helped them sort of make that something concrete. And then I can think about it. If I decide I lost my brother and uh, to, again, a ghoul attack on the Carnathy border, then next time we meet ghouls, that's an easy thing for me to be like, this is how I, you know, to, to pick up on and run with. Yeah, yeah and I was going to mention that um, for, for a civilian who isn't familiar with combat um two good books if you want to understand what combat can what the experience of combat can be like or what what the experience of war can be like i should say and how it can change somebody uh studs turkle uh turkle's uh the good war uh which is a series of interviews uh, with people who were affected by world war ii is, is a really good resource um on the fiction side of things max brooks world war z mm-hmm mm-hmm um, which is a really good resource as well. And you can see that these people share their stories, these characters in, in the in the World War Z sense. Uh, they share their stories, but they also, you get a sense of how it changed them and how it affects them now. Um, the on, on a game side of things, um, some systems have really cool tools, like Savage Worlds has something called interludes, where you can, it's an opportunity for characters or for players to share stories v- through their characters' voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be a really cool way um, of maybe sharing uh, an improvisational story about something that happened during that last war as well, um, reflecting on something like, you know, some of these interviews and such. So. Yeah, and I love, I love dropping in flashbacks and things like that. And I've done that before uh, of actually, you know, as I said, I've done campaigns where I've started it off with all the people together, but I've also done things when the characters are not part of a unit together or anything like that, but one character, you know, fought of at some point, just let's take a flashback. I'm going to hand out pregens uh, to each of you. And tonight we're just playing this important, you know, point of, uh, uh, you know, of Keith's life. 
uh, and we're just going to have this this one little scenario. And that kind of thing can be very interesting for just taking a quick break right. uh, from whatever you've been doing. And Scott, you were gonna you were gonna mention something, Scott. What was that? Oh, was it, yeah, I was gonna mention a couple of things. So, in like, if you couple um, what Wayne wants with kind of how um, um, Keith does it, it, it is is really good, right? Because you can do those things like, hey, you might recognize someone in the crowd that you think looks like a buddy you left behind, and you can turn mm-hmm. them and be like, you know, what was it? You know, what, what were you, what were you feeling when you realized that you know your friend had died? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you want to really portray sort of the, the post war combatant. Um, in the military, we love nothing more than what we normally refer to as sibling rivalry, right? I'm a sailor and I tell you what, um, I can break a Marine's balls all day long, but the moment (laughs) a soldier or an airman were to talk shit to a Marine, Mm -hmm. it would be a bar fight extraordinaire with department of the Navy representing, right? And that's just how we do. And if you can capture that essence, um, and like, like Keith was saying, when you have these people from different maybe nations who are now together. And if they did fight in that war, which they likely did, you can play on that too and ask those open-ended leading questions. You know, nice. like, hey, you know, the Carnatha over there, what do you think about, you know, Carnathi infantry is some of the best in the world, so they claim, I don't know, you know, you guys seem to hold it pretty well. Let them play off of that. And and that's certainly, uh, you know, a good point is, again, Eberron isn't by default a war story. You know, it's up to right. you to tell what kind of story you want, uh, but it's a story where you all were likely in some way part of or affected by the war. Right. But coming back to that example that I gave of, uh, you know, we had the the priest who was in the church at the time. We had the paladin whose uh, family had actually basically been disgraced. And, you know, they've been part of the, the chivalric orders and disavowed and disgraced by uh, um, Karnath. And his sort of driving storyline was essentially, I'm going to bring down Caius for what he did to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it worked there because while technically one of them's from Thrain and one of them's from Karnath, um, the, the Thrain hadn't actually been sort of out on the battlefield and the Karn basically was uh, sort of unhappy with his own country, you know. So it wasn't like he was a super patriot uh, prepared to, you know, fight all thrains, as it were. He was basically like, "Well, if you're willing to help me uh, fight Caius, then then uh, that's good enough for me." So, yeah. Yeah, and and even on a very just surface level, if you want to have that grizzled inquisitive. Just have him grizzled because he was in the last war. Exactly. Was, and yeah. uh, if you take a look at the characters in the Dreaming Dark series, you know, it is very much, uh, you know, Dane is the idea of that person who used to believe in the silver flame and after seeing the morning just can't, you know, lost his faith. Right. Uh, and it's exactly what you're saying is any sort of Sharn type stories, you know, it's easy to just say, again, well, I've seen things, kid, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um. Or to again say, well, I didn't fight in the war because I didn't believe in it. You know, I uh, maybe I was a smuggler, you know, or something like that because I didn't have faith in my country. You know, so there's lots of different ways you can go with it. Um, I do just have to quickly note that I also, excuse me, also did have a, a campaign setup that we did once that was literally just all the people had hung out in the same bar during the war. And the halfling <laughs> rogue 
was the innkeeper. The Warforged fighter was the bouncer that she had bought, you know, originally to to protect her bar. Uh, One of the characters was a sort of Friar Tucky, Barfly, uh, distant drunk priest who basically after the morning was like, I got to get my act together and, you know, really make a difference in the world. And you had like a Valinor mercenary. Uh, and the idea is that the, the bar had burnt down during the war. And so now they're like the order of the, you know, the round table, if you will. But we're talking about the round table at the bar that we someday are going to rebuild a bar. Um, and so what I'm saying is you can take that in different ways. You can say we're the, the unit of soldiers, but you can also people brought together in different ways and, you know, less grim, as it were. So I think a lot of what we talked about with regards to um, how do we how do we sort of frame our player characters in the context of the Lost War, uh, we, we've kind of talked about what we intended to discuss with regards to how do we incorporate it as a GM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the only thing that, that we didn't touch on is, for example, if we wanted to run a campaign that took place during the Lost War uh, and maybe change some of the events mm-hmm. and change what, you know, say, the future of your Ebron looks like, mm-hmm. um, you could do that. Um but, you know, a lot of the other things with regards to, you know, we're, there's the threat of war reigniting, right? Or, or the chance of war reigniting. Um, people who are curious about investigating the, the events of the day of, of mourning, uh, or the cause of it, I should say. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I mean, that, that's exactly the thing is, is, you know, you take, again, looking to novels, you know, my Thorn of Brayland series is basically Cold War espionage. Mm-hmm. set against uh, Eberron. And so that's an easy thing if you if you want that kind of story to pick a nation and say, we're working with the royal eyes, you know, we're part of the uh, King's Dark Lanterns, you know, that's a, if you want a spy story, that's a possibility. Uh, there's a lot of room in areas like Sharn in particular, or Stormreach, just to explore the whole, the balance of power has been broken. And uh, that that affects criminal groups uh, have, you know, gained more power or again, there's now a proliferation of magical weapons being smuggled around um, or as we sort of suggested, you know, just dealing with Warforged um, and there's a lot of things that can affect things in the background uh, even if you don't want to make that, this is what my game is about. The big thing I'll drop right. out again is just the point of the Mornland, as I said, is the world's biggest dungeon. Right. Is It means we don't have to say, why are there these ancient ruins that no one's explored? Well, some of those are around, but we also have ruins that are ruins as of two years ago. You know, and right. all the wealth of a nation is is in the Mornland, if you're willing to get in there and find it. Uh, and that doesn't even get into trying to figure out what caused the morning or if it can happen again. Well, and interestingly, is you can actually think of the Mornland as yet another nation if you consider the Lord of Blades and the Warforged followers that he has that are trying to create a nation out of the Mornland. And so there's that threat as well. Yeah, and similarly, you know, same concept with Droam. That right. you have essentially a force that is generally, you know, many will see as terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially creating their own their own nation and are they justified uh, do we support that or are we afraid of it um, and the Lord of Blaze in particular is very much someone you can use in either direction 
you can use him as a crazy psycho uh, who's who's just a sheer enemy, or you can use him as a maybe he's got a point. You know, as a warforged, how do I feel about him? Is he Magneto, or you know, and again, even Magneto or Doctor Doom in some scenarios are presented as sympathetic uh, from the view of their people. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so there's also some elements where you can incorporate things like you know we, we've talked about this briefly, uh, such as the racism toward warforged, um, or just even inter you know. Uh, you know, dealing with nationalities, right. Which we talked about already. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the whole thing regarding these Syrian refugees that we have. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is, this kind of harkens back a little bit to what we talked about in, in our, our previous episode about taking real world issues and reflecting upon them in this fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've seen similar things occur where, um, you know, do, do we, do we address it as something that do the people of Corvair, I should say, address them as a threat, as somebody that they want to turn their backs on as because they were formerly enemies, or do they suddenly have empathy for these people who've lost their home? And, right. and purely from a, a immediate game story standpoint, this also comes up. If you take that uh, story example we gave of saying, Oh, you guys fought for Siri during the war. Uh, you now have the, and are you just going to run around and try and make a buck and, uh, you know, be looking out for yourselves or are you trying to do something to help your people? Right. Um, you know, and that's something that again can be easy to evolve over time of, oh, you start out just trying to keep flying, if you will. Uh, and then you go to, um, you know, you're approached by Orgev or you go to high walls or you go somewhere and are faced with what's going on with the refugees and such. And well, how do you react to that? You know? So I think one of the things that we mentioned earlier is the last war is over, but not really two years, Mm -hmm. not a lot of time. You remember what you did two years ago and it's a big thing. It's, it's a gigantic thing and it's really, you know, you can you can play a campaign completely not dealing with the last war, or you can complain you can play a campaign that all you're doing is dealing with the effects of the last war from the racism to the right. the new quote unquote status quo. Um dealing with the person that you tried to kill is now supposed to be your friend, the Cold War uh aspect, the Cold War mentality, the the new level of you know how much acceptance do we have for these these refugees this new these new nations um how much hatred do i have for my neighbor uh, who's just across that border where 100 years ago that border didn't exist mm-hmm. it's there's there's so much that can be done and as a as a gm as a dm you really have to choose the lens in which you are going to present your campaign in, in terms of the last war, everybody's affected by it. Every player character has something, but it's up to the DM to, to point that lens in the direction you want to focus it on. Right. And I, I think that's so important because, again, with all the stuff we've been talking about, basically what we're saying is you can make it a really intense focus of things, but you also don't have to. You know, you can just say, well, this is something uh, that has affected us in some ways, but it's not the focus. 
And, you know, we're moving on, we're growing. Right. And you can go in between of, again, you can say, well, uh, we're going on what amounts to a dungeon crawl. And what that dungeon crawl is, is, well, I've got the location of a uh, weapons cache that was left. It's a stockpile of magical weapons uh, that's been forgotten, and I know where it is. And let's go get it. And, you know, essentially, that's just going to be, oh, we got to get by the magical defenses, which were left in place. You know, I mean, it's a total straight-up dungeon crawl, but it exists because of the war. Right. Uh, if you right. see what I'm saying. So, you know, you've got those those different options of are you driven by it or are you essentially wandering through its aftermath and picking off the pieces? You know, that's a good point you make, too, because that aftermath, you know, there's a, there's that physical aspect of the ruins, the wreckage, the right. the the um, you know, like you, it, 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 there was a comment you made uh, recently, even about like minefields, for example. Yep. Um, on, on like, say, a, a piece of farmland, right? And that's now untouched, right? Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunity to, for as a GM to even bring that visually or to make that even part of the challenge, part of the adventure where you have to, you know, go through and, these. And that's exactly the point to me is just when we've had this amount of time and the concept that this was a war fought by nations with access to magic, uh, you know, who could be doing anything from, uh, you know, creating things like Warforged Titans to potentially trying to summon planar forces, you know, to, you know, it, we're mm-hmm. constantly experimenting with more and more powerful stuff, trying to get an edge on the enemy. What consequences did that have? Whether it's, again, there's a rogue Titan stomping around this particular area that no one's figured out how to stop to, oh, well, we detonated this experimental dolar bomb that has flooded this particular region with ghosts. And that one of the problems with a static, happy, civilized nation is why are there any things for adventurers to deal with? Why haven't those been cleaned up by now? You know, that's the point of Galifar is after centuries of peace, why is there an area filled with monsters? Uh, and the war gives the ability to say there are these, if you will, literal or figurative minefields that are left behind because of the consequences of everything we've been doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back again to, to the point of treasure, you know, why is there still this incredibly valuable stuff just sitting in this hole in the ground uh, after a long time? Well, now we're saying it's because it's only been sitting there for six years it's just, you know, right. again, taking Siri, any wealth that was possessed by that nation is still there, you know? So yeah. it's not that it's ancient, mysterious treasure. It's just treasure. So anyhow. Yeah. And again, you know, that could even be, you know, you've got the we're just in it for the money, but you've also got the we need to recover, you know, personal family relics or information vital uh, to someone, you know, all of those things that were left behind. It doesn't all have right. to be some, some lost records of something or, or right. Exactly. Yeah. Doesn't have to be gold or, or money Precisely. Or to that effect. Yeah. You know, and, and earlier you did touch on something with respect to whether or not to focus on, on a on a certain element during adventure. And I, I want to give you credit, Keith, for um, Steel Shadows, which was the adventure that you oh, wrote thanks. in Dungeon 115. I actually am wrapping that up tomorrow night in my own campaign. And uh, that's exactly an example of where 
there is that element of that racism toward Warforged, you know, um, as, as a thing that can be focused on. Uh, there are certain characters that are, you know, or even the reverse where Warforged are racist toward, um, uh, toward, you know, humanoids and such. Uh, and I, and I thought that was an, an interesting way of in the adventure itself, bringing that out through the dialogue with the characters. So, and, and the thing to me is it just is something where, especially with Warforged, when you just stop to think about what's it like sitting in a room with one and mm. you have the fact that not only if I'm a normal, just if I'm me, Keith, is this thing, you know, tougher, stronger, uh, you know, easily able to kill me if it decided to do so. Uh, but then you also do have the, and it doesn't sleep and it doesn't, you know, do any of these, uh, these things that if I'm, you know, a construction worker, I would feel threatened because it can right. just, it's stronger than me. It's tireless. It doesn't, uh, even sort of, it doesn't have a family to, to support. Yeah. doesn't have um, to stop for a meal, you know? And it's all back to that, you know, uh, racism is, racism is obviously never a thing, you know, any of us want to support, but it's all, no. you can easily see how it could happen. And then that's a thing you can explore. So I think we've touched on everything that we've wanted to, unless there's any other, um, closing thoughts that anybody wants to throw in. Definitely. One of the things that I am sad about in Eberron Mm -hmm. Uh, is I really wish we'd had an opportunity. It's certainly a thing I would love to do if there ever is an opportunity to really explore more of basically the actual developments during the war and the ways in which magic was used in war. So, you know, I will simply say again, in my novels and such, I have suggested the concepts of the magical equivalents of mines. I've suggested the siege staff and the whole concept of the siege staff is if a wand is a way to channel magic, uh, a staff is a more powerful way to channel magic, then let's make a staff out of a tree trunk that is exponentially more powerful. And that's artillery, yeah. you know, as I'm not just, if I have a wand that can throw a fireball, then I want this, this essential, you know, as I said, tree trunk staff that can throw a fireball, you know, with, uh, 20, you know, a hundred times the, the range and 10 times the area of effect. Um, but it still comes back to that idea. Someone created the Warforged Titan and then, well, obviously they had to come up with what is it that you use when you're faced against a Warforged Titan? Right. You know, technology and war is all about, again, sort of coming up with the, the, the thing and then coming up with the thing to deal with the thing. And, I definitely feel a lot of magic in D&D is geared towards high-level squad combat because that's what parties of players are. Right. And in Eberron, you were dealing with large numbers of low-level characters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the spells don't really fit that sort of thing. And I'd like to think more about, okay, so what was the magic they used? And this is the kind of thing I really had hoped would be explored in Forge of War, uh, and unfortunately wasn't. Um, because to me, those are things that could then work into adventures and be used in interesting ways. Well, kind of quasi off, uh, uh, unofficially, I guess, or officially, I'm not sure how to, how to interpret this. Keith, I'm not sure if you read um, Heroes of Battle in 3.5. I did. 
Yeah, I thought there was some there were some interesting ideas that I think could have fit really well into Forge of War. No, absolutely, and and that was much closer to where I would have liked to have seen Forge of War go. And and I right, have various right. other issues with Forge of War too. Forge of War, I will just come out and say, oh. is my least uh, favorite. We could do a whole episode on Forge of War issues. <laughs> yes, yes, we could. Um, but it still comes out to me it was a missed opportunity of, among other things, really getting a sense. You know, just as I said of of you know what were those periods when things changed? What were the innovations that really shook things up? And how did people react to them? Right. Indeed. Great. Well, I think that wraps it up unless anybody else has any other uh, additional thoughts. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening and uh, be sure to join us next month when we actually talk about dragon marks and the dragon mark houses. So uh, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show. Uh, You can post comments on an episode. You can find links to our Google plus Twitter and Facebook pages and such, uh, whatever option you prefer, just let us know what you think of the show. And until next time, uh, yeah, keep playing. Thanks everyone.